Good morning. Uh, if you're here, you're new. This is going to be a little different service because we got spontaneous on Friday night. Uh, Jeremy Pryor is with us with uh, his family. is coming second service, his wife and five children. Uh, they came from Kentucky to minister through family teams. If you don't know what family teams is, we heard all about it. And we heard, and actually, uh, my oldest son, Trevor, was really the catalyst to Jeremy because uh, in Texas is where he connected with, with Jeremy for a few years now. Uh, and so he, he was talking to us about it. He came, and I've seen, we, we now live with our oldest son and his three wonderful grandsons, or his sons, our grandsons. We've seen the fruit, uh, a lot of what uh, Jeremy's bringing this morning. So uh, it, it, I wish you could have been here uh, Friday inside if you weren't. We had about 80 people or so, about 40 couples, and we heard some stuff that is very new and very challenging. I read the book Family Revision that Jeremy wrote, and uh, it's very challenging, very new. And I, I asked, so on Friday night, I said to Jeremy, would you consider coming Sunday? And he's here, and he likes the spontaneity of all that stuff. So uh, I asked him if he would bring a little word, because uh, a couple of things that Jeremy said, the gospel is delivered through family language. The gospel is delivered through family language. And then also, adoption tells the story uh, of the gospel. And we have four adopted children, and we're in the New Testament, Jeremy, maybe you'll hit on this, I don't know, but just the whole idea of being adopted into God's family is the gospel, what God did for us. So in Family Revision, a couple of quotes I just wanted to, in introducing Jeremy, the most critical family training is what I think of simply as gospel training. The most critical family training. And then this quote uh, says, from the very first stages of pages of scripture, starting with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the Bible teaches how to bring the family under God's rule. From there, the New Testament uses the story of the gospel to fully redeem the essence of family by illustrating the true spiritual picture that each family relationship reflects. Marriage, adoption, sonship, fatherhood, etc. So would you give a warm welcome for Jeremy as he brings a word. Excellent. So good to be with you guys. Excited to continue to talk about this whole topic of family that, that for me has been so helpful and just try to understand the gospel. Actually, I'm going to grab this one over here. I think a little bit higher. There we go. I like to sit down. I was telling the, the folks that, was, that were here for the weekend, I, we do a lot of kind of house church stuff, so I'm so used to being in the living room when I have these conversations. This feels a little bit more like a living room. You guys are on nice couches, and you can just have a little chat about, you know, these things. That makes me feel a little more family-ness, you know, what we're talking about here today. Um, so I want to introduce you guys real quick to us, to my family. Um, we're, uh, we're, these couple pictures. My Oldest daughter, Kelsey, just got married, so we're really excited about that, and, and they are expecting, so we're going to be grandparents soon. We're so pumped about that. Uh, on the right is a, we do uh, about once a month, a family summit dinner, um, and what we do during that time is talk about, okay, where's this multi-generational family going? So my son-in-law, Matthew, is, it comes to those as well, and, uh, and so we, we sit down and we just strategize as a family team, like, what are we building? Where is this going? How are we stewarding? What missions is the Lord giving us? Those are really life-giving uh, conversations. So it's just a quick selfie that we took um, from that. But one of the things I wanted to tell you guys, too, is, you know, I'm, I am a native of this area. I, uh, I am a graduate of Federal High School. <laughs> um, 
I, uh, I, I, I miss being here. And, um, and one of the things, my, my whole story and my whole experience of what family is uh, was really one in which um, while I was a youth pastor in Federal Way, I, I you know, grew up there, um, I, I just, I did see, and this is true as I, I lived in California and Portland, um, just a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, families that had disintegrated. And uh, particularly the, the thing that I think was most clear was there was a lot of confusion with regards to fatherhood and, and, uh, and, and family. A lot of, so many of my friends that I grew up in ha- had issues where their fathers had abandoned the family. When I was a youth pastor, um, we were working primarily with kids from the public school system. And man, I mean, the, the amount of devastation that I witnessed over that time was just immense. And, and I, I got really disillusioned. I really was like, is this is family thing a good idea? <laughs> like, is this an experiment that just doesn't work? Like, what, what, what is going on here? Uh, it really did affect my uh, optimism. I, I, was, I loved the gospel. I loved, you know, serving the Lord. I was a passionate follower of Jesus. But the family thing really was confusing to me. And I wasn't, I wasn't very excited, to be honest, about building a family. Uh, and in that context, I was 23 years old as a single guy. Um, and I, was, I went to Jerusalem for a semester abroad. And in that, in Jerusalem, I kept noticing fathers and families everywhere. Like fathers were so interested in their families. And really for me, it all culminated one day. I was sitting on a bench in Jerusalem and I watched a group of dads pushing strollers, like a little daddy brigade with all these little kids in tow. And I was like, what, what is going on here? <laughs> like why in the world are these fathers so passionate about family? Haven't they heard how you know, men and family don't mix and, you know, like all the things that I kind of assumed or just, you know, lessons that I picked up on. And so over the course of that time, I really began to study fatherhood from the perspective of these Jewish fathers. And what I discovered was that they saw family totally differently than Western dads. Um, we typically think about family in the West as a springboard for individual success. And they believed that family was more like a multi-generational team on mission. Those are not the same. And so what we unpacked over the course of this last weekend was really, um, really trying to understand the difference between those two things and how if you really see family as a multi-generational team, how that, that really impacts the heart of fathers and it really turns their heart towards the family. And in that context, I began to uh, talk just a little bit about the gospel and how important it is for us to, um, that the gospel is really the most important thing, right? When we talk about family, I know this is a secondary thing. And I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, getting to preach the gospel, uh, teach about the gospel. I'm super passionate about the gospel. I really see that as central. But there is a connection between uh, the preservation of the idea of family in the Bible and people's ability to receive and hear the, the story and the message of the gospel. And that's really what I want to unpack with you guys this morning. What is that connection? Um, let's talk about that. So if I were just to sum it up, I'm gonna, and this is what we're going to unpack this morning, is that is that when a family really embraces their, who they are, their identity as father, mother, sons, and daughters, that the New Testament describes that as the building of a kingdom outpost. And that outpost reveals the, hearts, the heart of our Heavenly Father. People are able to experience that heart of the Father. There's something different about hearing the gospel when you're at a table, a family table, where you, you're experiencing uh, family-ness, where you're experiencing the roles of the family. There's something about that that is woven into the gospel. And if, if the enemy can somehow obliterate uh, in any culture 
the, the, the memory of what fatherhood is, what motherhood is, what sonship is, what daughterhood is, it's very difficult for that, for that culture to receive the gospel. And so we have a lot of work to do, right, here in the Northwest to make sure that we preserve this picture. Like a lot is at stake, and so we got to talk about this, all right? So, um, and, and I think some of the dissonance that we experience when it comes to trying to understand uh, the connection between family and the gospel is really a misunderstanding of the gospel itself. So I want to I really talk, uh, we're going to kind of have two, two like big picture conversations. One is about what is the gospel so that we can understand how family fits in, and then exactly how does, you know, how does the, the family picture start to help people hear the, the message or the good news of the gospel. All right, so we're going to look at Mark 1. So if you guys, I'll put all the verses here on the screen. You feel free to look up these verses as well. Um, Mark 1. So this is a really, really important passage. So Mark 1 is where uh, we really get a, an immediate snapshot of, of what Jesus was preaching. I'll read this. It says, Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's gospel. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel or the good news, right? That's what he's talking about, the good news. Now, this, one of the interesting things about this that I didn't know, this little statement, is I was listening to a New Testament scholar who um, is an atheist, and he was being asked, who, who is Jesus? You're a New Testament scholar, but you don't believe in Jesus at all. Um, but what do you, who do you think Jesus is? What's the consensus, especially among secular New Testament scholars? Uh, that don't, don't really have any faith in the gospel. He says, well, I'll tell you the one thing that we all agree on about Jesus. And they say, Jesus was the guy who said, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the gospel. He said, we know that that, we have historic reasons for believing that. We doubt a lot of miracles, blah, 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 but we know this is true. Now, I thought that was interesting because you can unpack virtually the entire thing that Jesus does in his whole ministry through these very simple words of Jesus because this was his sermon. You know, this is the shortest sermon of all time. <laughs> I mean, he's like, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. That's what he preached. And that's what his disciples preached. They went around making this announcement. They would go to like literal town squares and make this announcement. So I want you to picture what it might have been like if you were in a little village in Galilee and you were sitting there one day, you know, doing whatever you do uh, on, in a given morning. And whenever there was an announcement to be made, you know, this was the broadcast news of their day, somebody would come to the town square and just yell it out. So that wasn't unusual, you know, to hear people make these announcements. So all of a sudden you're sitting there and this guy, the carpenter from a few towns over, you know, pops into the village square and says, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. So what are you thinking? as a first century Jewish person in that village. And I think it's, it's really important to kind of picture what they would thought. Now, I don't think it's, it's, it's not too confusing to imagine what they thought. Um, likely, what most believe was when Jesus was saying this, the kingdom of God has come at last, they thought, oh my goodness, like we're about to get free from the Romans. Like that, that would have been, right, the first reaction. They were, they were under the, the boot of the Roman Empire, they were suffering terribly under uh, this occupation, and they desperately wanted freedom from it. And the way that they thought about getting free from that was the Messiah is going to come, and the kingdom of God is going to break in, and they're gonna, he, that kingdom is going to free us. 
Now, the question I have for you guys is this. Were they right? Now, I've, I've heard, as people have talked about this, that when the Jewish people had that reaction to Jesus' sermon, that they were wrong, that really they, they misunderstood the nature of, of the gospel and the kingdom. But I think that's a little bit too simplistic. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking when he said this. And I think Jesus actually wanted them, expected them to think that, that they were about to get free. Now, when and how they, they, got, they are going to get free, those were things Jesus is going to go on to challenge <clears throat> as, he, as, as, his, as his ministry develops. But, but I think he did intentionally foment this, this anticipation of freedom that, that when he made this announcement. Um, now, we need to look at what exactly Jesus says because it's, fairly, it's very nuanced. <laughs> this announcement is so important to understand if you want to understand the gospel. So as he says here, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Well, which is it? Isn't that weird? So the, the, the time promise has come. Like, it's here. But the kingdom of God is near. Is, is, it, is it now or is it coming? Like, which is it, <laughs> Jesus? Now, uh, both are important to him. That there's two dimensions to the kingdom of God. There's a time dimension and there's a spatial dimension, Right? So the, the time promised by God has come. So from a, a time perspective, it, it has come. In other words, Jesus is right there embodying the presence of the kingdom of God. The king is right there on the earth calling people into the kingdom. So the kingdom has come. The time promised has come. But the spatial dimension is a little different. The, 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 the kingdom of God is near. In other words, it's close to you, like, but it may not be upon you. <laughs> right? There's a, there could be a distance between you, and how do you make up that distance? Well, he tells us, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, another thing that's really tricky that we have to work out here is this, this word gospel, right? The good news. If you were to ask most Christians, okay, like in one sentence, what's the gospel? Just, just like break it down for me really simply. I've all, I always heard that the gospel was Jesus died for your sins, you know, so that you could uh, be reconciled to God. Is that the gospel here? Well, Jesus hasn't died yet. This is three years before Jesus dies. Um, so what is the gospel? And this is, a really, this is really tricky because uh, if the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins, um, look, at, look carefully what Jesus is saying here. So he comes and preaches God's gospel. The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. So... Jesus is preaching a gospel of the kingdom, the coming kingdom. So which, which is the true gospel? You know, Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you the gospel that Jesus died for your sins. So the idea that Jesus died for your sins is certainly not uh, opposed to the gospel. It's right there in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so so is, is the gospel, are there two gospels? <laughs> it's like, is there a Jesus gospel and is there a Pauline gospel? Like what's, what's happening here? And so it's really important for us to understand that, that the, the gospel that Jesus died for your sins is nested inside of a larger story that the kingdom of God is coming, is returning to the earth. That is the larger story of the gospel. Now, this is, we're going to get into why this has a massive impact on the idea of family. And so many of us believe in what I like to call a Genesis 3 through 
the cross gospel. So our story, many people, the gospel, the story of the gospel they believe starts in Genesis 3. We fell, and then Jesus comes through his death, burial, and resurrection to rescue us from the Genesis, Genesis 3 fall. But again, that, that story, which is a part of the gospel, is nested inside of a larger story that starts in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation 22. That larger story is that God initially created a kingdom over which he was ruling, where he made a family to begin to expand the kingdom, this the order of God, beginning with a prototypical garden where his presence could fully dwell, where there was perfect relationship between humanity, between man and woman, between husband and wife and their children. And they were, they were told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. That, 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 that being under rulers of a king, this is the Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 gospel. And Jesus came to the Jewish people to say, you guys, it's on. That kingdom is coming. Now, his death, burial, and resurrection is the doorway back into that gospel, that kingdom. And so it's really important to make sure that we understand this full story of the gospel. Because as a single guy, um, you know, I was in Federal Way, I really, I was passionate as a single guy about, about you know, telling my friends uh, at my high school about the, about the salvation that they could have in Jesus. But again, I felt this enormous dissonance between being a kind of a missionary for Jesus and being really zealous to see people come to faith in Jesus as their savior and this understanding of this larger picture of why I would start a family, why I would be a father, why I would raise children. And those things always felt a little bit like off to me. Like if I could spend all of my time being a missionary, all of my time uh, really spreading the uh, salvation message of the gospel, why would I start a family, right? And I, de I definitely think there are people that God calls to be single for life for that reason. There are people that are called to be single missionaries to wholeheartedly bring the story of the gospel uh, in, in places and ways that their singleness allows them to be fully released. And we see that narrative all through the New Testament, and Paul really highlights the importance of that in 1 Corinthians 7. But some of us are called to, you know, build and raise families, and a lot of what we're doing when we're raising families is to be a part of this expansion of the kingdom in, in this way. So uh, how does that really look when, when families get involved? Because most of the New Testament is this story about single missionaries, you know, proclaiming the gospel. And so I want to really highlight uh, an understanding of where Jesus speaks directly to, to households and how households really contributed to the spread of the gospel in, in Jesus's ministry in particular. But the last thing we, we need to make sure we understand is to really grasp what the gospel of the kingdom is. Now, a lot of this is trying to understand, like, what, what is a kingdom? And, and you know, we, we don't grow up in a kingdom. We're, we're, you know, democracy, no taxation without representation. You know, we have, like, a very different idea of what good government looks like. Um, and, and so, but they were very familiar with, with a lot of this king language. And Jesus really describes exactly what the kingdom is. And I've wrestled with this question. I think it's really important to have a very precise definition of the kingdom. Um, he says in the Lord's Prayer, right, he says, um, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. So he's addressing God as Father. Again, we're going to talk a lot about the importance of that. But the first request Jesus makes when he is addressing the Father is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is where the rule of God, the effective rule of God reigns. It's where his will is done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Everywhere in Kent, Washington, where the will of God is done as it is in heaven is a part of the kingdom of God. And our job is to expand that kingdom, is to participate in seeking that kingdom. And so that is the definition of the kingdom. Or another way to think of it is it is the dome over which a king reigns, right? You guys remember the kingdom? That was a fairly depressing place to watch a Mariners game, I thought. Uh, I really appreciate it when you guys start building stadiums. Um, That's a lot more beautiful. Uh, but but that's, that's what a kingdom is, right? A dome over which a king reigns. Wherever his effective rule is reigning, that is what a kingdom is. And then Jesus began to tell parables about how the kingdom comes, right? He started to tell people, you know, I mean, I, I would imagine, you know, you, a lot of his disciples were so excited about this message of the kingdom. I mean, they were like, when are we going to do it? Like, the, the whole time they were following Jesus, they, they, any moment now, they, they really thought that something dramatic was going to start to break out. So Jesus, Jesus used to walk around with his disciples and say, hey guys, come here, come here. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. <laughs> the smallest of all seeds. Yet, when it's planted, it becomes the largest tree. And even the birds come and find nests in the branches. The kingdom of God is like yeast, you know? And so I think the disciples were constantly like, okay, <laughs> like, and Jesus was really trying to, to, to help them understand that, that the kingdom of God starts really small. And, and he's trying to help them understand it, it is a kingdom. It is coming to, to, to rule and reign. It is taking, taking over. But look, you guys, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come in a different way than you thought. It's going to start small. And so even when Jesus rose from the dead, you guys remember in Acts 1, the first question the disciples asked Jesus, that they get Jesus and they're like, hey, is now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, <laughs> and Jesus did not say, again, he did not say, you guys are so dense. You don't get it. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the places of the kingdom. But if you wait in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You will be that yeast. You will be that mustard seed. This movement's starting, and we are taking over. That, that's a different gospel. And that, that taking over is not political. It is, it is through calling people uh, through their hearts to repent and believe. Jesus made that very clear. The gospel, we don't do it through power. We do it through calling people to come back into the king, to the king. So we have to, under, like, we try to understand, what is this nearness about? Like, if that's the way the kingdom expands, like, how, how does it come near? Okay, and now, I, I really wrestle with, like, how to even think about this, because this is a really complex question. Um, so I'm going to give you guys an analogy to try to really unpack the spatial dimension of the kingdom. Now, you guys know that the Texans uh, are always out there threatening to secede from the United States, right? They're like, we don't need you guys anymore. We can be our own, our own nation, because they, they were at one time. They're very proud of that. Um, and uh, so imagine that the United States is like a kingdom. Let's, let's say we had a king, and, you know, Texas was a part of the kingdom. And Texas decides, finally, we've had enough with the United States. We are going to break away from this king and start our own kingdom. And so Texas finally succeeds in seceding from the United States. Um, now, if you're the king in Washington, D.C., and you're like, oh, my gosh, these Texans, like, what do you do? Like, there's, there's a couple options, right? You could say, well, I mean, I, I really believe I am the rightful king, and, and this is, you know, they've essentially stolen a giant portion of my land. 
but I'll let him go. Like, you could let him go. That's, that's one option. Another option, of course, is you could invade, right, and say, you will be a part of the kingdom. Here comes the army. Now, if those Texans are really rebellious, you might have to, like, wipe out half the population to get them quelled and get them to come back into your kingdom. Very, very violent. Lots and lots of death and destruction. And then you've got people that feel occupied. Oof, man, you can do it. You know, that's been done many times in history. Um, there is a third option, and it's, it's a really weird one, okay? Now, imagine that uh, the king says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take off my royal robes, just wear typical Texan-looking-ish garments, you know, maybe a hat and a couple boots, and I'm going to get to the border of Texas. And then I'm going I'm to walk over the border into some, like, border uh, town in Texas, get to the town square and say, and so imagine he does this. He walks, nobody kind of recognizes him at first. He, he walks into a town square and he says, you guys, like, I am a good king. Like, please, this is my kingdom. Repent of what you're doing. Like the kingdom, the time has come for you to stop this rebellion. Like the kingdom of God is, is that my kingdom is near you. Repent and believe. So if you, so all of a sudden he does this, where is the kingdom at that moment? Imagine at that moment if um, somebody listening to that on the border says, you know, and they're maybe a father over a family, has a house right on the border, maybe a ranch, and they're like, ooh, wow, I can't believe the king, like, he's so vulnerable, like, we could shoot him right now, <laughs> like, like this, is, this is insane. Maybe he is a good king. Maybe all the propaganda that is pumping out of Austin is not true about this king. Like, like maybe we should, maybe, you know what? Okay, I'm, I, yes, you are my king. Okay. If you're a cartographer, how do you, where's the border of Texas right there at that moment, right? You're like, oh, okay, all right. So you believe, so, okay, that's now back in the, in the kingdom of the United States. Okay, that person didn't believe, okay. Okay, but the husband believed, but the wife didn't. The wife believed, but the husband, you know, you can imagine how complex trying to, and so what you, the only thing you almost could say is, well, the kingdom of God is near you, right? <laughs> like there's all kinds of pockets of the kingdom all over the place here. It's near you. Um, and so that's, that is kind of the, the nature of the kingdom. And so as Jesus continues, and this is the whole story of what Jesus was doing when he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, because there's one last move that the king could make that really is dramatic. Um, because eventually you can, you can hang out on these little border towns for as long as you want. But eventually the king, if he's the rightful king, he's got to go to the capital, right? And proclaim this message there. Talk about dangerous. So imagine the day when the king gets to Austin and walks into the capital and makes this declaration. That's what Jesus did. That's what we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. He walks into the capital city of the world called Jerusalem and calls on the rulers of, of the city to lay down their arms and, and return to the kingdom. And of course, he knew what was going to happen, that they were not going to accept his proclamation, that they would see him as a threat, as he is, and they were going to kill him. And in doing so, uh, would destroy forever the opportunity for us, the people of the earth, to return into the kingdom of God. But of course, he didn't know, the, the enemy didn't know, that what was actually happening was that Jesus was, in that moment, uh, making a genuine offer for people to repent and believe in the kingdom. But through their decision to kill him, 
he was actually solving a much greater problem, which was how are we to be atoned for? Like, again, like imagine that this sort of king gets to Austin and everyone's like, oh, I'm so sorry, we lay down our arms. I mean, what if they have killed many people, all of the sins they committed? What is, what is the king going to, what is a just king going to do, right? And so that, that fear that they have is part of what's going to stop them from repenting and believing. Well, Jesus solved that problem, right? He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to pay the price for you so that you can freely come back into the kingdom and understand that my heart is good towards you. And so this is the Genesis 1, you know, through Revelation 22 gospel. It's the bringing back of the kingdom of God on the earth. And so this is what Jesus is proclaiming. And when we think about family and how much it's important for us, we are those little outposts. We are those little stations uh, in, in, in a rebellious world where people, little pockets, where people can enter into our homes and experience and taste the kingdom of God. And, you know, Jesus talked about this in Luke 10. This was an essential part of his missionary strategy. Luke 10 is an incredibly important chapter. It's also in the book of Matthew, where, where what is unpacked is how Jesus wanted to retake uh, land for the kingdom of God. He sends his disciples two by two and gives them a bunch of instructions, including these. Whenever you enter someone's house, first say, may God's peace be on this house. Shalom to this house, Right? the kingdom be here. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever it sets before you. Heal the sick. Tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go into the streets and say, we wipe even the dust of, our, of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate and know this, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. So this, this, is, this is the missionary strategy of Jesus, and nothing has changed. This is, this is the missionary strategy to retake Kent, Washington. What we need to have is you might have some single missionaries that go out and are, have a lot of flexibility to go, go into different houses, but what's really critical is they have to have a house to go into, these houses of peace, right? And so once they find a house of peace to go into, they then proclaim the peace of God and the kingdom of God is near you, healing the sick and, you know, demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. And in that little pocket, as they're receiving hospitality, as they're eating, as they're using that outpost as in that network of relationships from that rooted family in that, in that village, in that place, to begin to proclaim the kingdom out. And one of the things that Jesus says that's really remarkable is if you go into a town and you can't find a family, you can't find a house of peace, you can't stay in that town. You've got to get out. That's how important households are in the expansion of the kingdom of God. Because God wants the way that people enter in to understand the kingdom, he wants it to happen in and through houses, families, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters. And so this, this strategy is really important to understand so that people can have an experience of the kingdom that's a family experience, not just an experience um, in some kind of general individual uh, way. So that's the first element of really understanding the way the gospel and the kingdom interact. And one of the things that I like to emphasize here is that oftentimes um, when we think about mission, there, and this is really what I saw when I was, um, my parents were really, really faithful at, at, uh, at doing ministry um, as I was growing up. But they, and virtually everyone I knew um, that was very zealous for ministry, had a philosophy of ministry that I like to call family and mission, right? So you have your family over here, you're trying to do, you know, really good uh, father, mother, you know, try to stay together, don't get divorced, like, 
you know, kind of family, but we do ministry over here. Like most of our mission is, is separated from family. You know, Billy Graham uh, was an incredible evangelist, but one of the things that, you know, he very uh, readily admitted to and said many times towards the end of his, his life is that he really regretted the way that he, he didn't integrate his family into his mission. There was a time where he was literally driving home and saw a little girl by the side of the road and, you know, playing in a little field and said, who's that? And somebody's like, oh, that's your daughter. Um, and it, this, you know, he really typified this idea that, hey, if the kingdom of God is really worthy, then even as married mothers and fathers, you know, I guess our families are going to have to take a massive hit, you know, for the kingdom. So that's one idea. A reaction to that, that a lot of us have heard is family as mission, right? So some are like, okay, we're not doing that. Family is really important. We're just going to get a piece of land somewhere, and we're going to focus on our kids. We're going to raise good kids, and whatever's going out there in the culture, you know, however bad it's getting, what matters is our family, you know? Um, and so they, they start to confuse the mission of the kingdom with just raising a good family as the beginning, middle, and end of the, min- of the mission, right? That's one idea, and I think we have to be careful of that one as well. What I believe that you can see there in Luke 10 is family on mission. That, man, your family and what you're doing in your home is so strategic for the kingdom of God. It's an integrated part of the kingdom that, fa- that our, we need to take our families on mission. This is part of the reason why I get, when I come here, um, I, want to, I want my family with me. Like, I'm on mission, but we're on mission together. Like, let's be together as a family on mission. And so that's a very different picture of the kingdom. So that, that's, that's a really important thing to understand. Now, there, there is a, we're really getting, that's sort of the strategy of how, of how the kingdom expands through family. I want to talk a little bit more about the heart of it. Let's get one layer deeper into that um, before we're done. So the last chapter, the last verses in the last chapter of the entire Old Testament, before we get into a 400-year silent period where no prophet emerged until John the Baptist, we read these words. This is from Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Wow. So one of the things that we hear here is that in order for this next, this, this sort of Elijah spirit is going to come and his primary mission is going to be a heart mission to turn the hearts of fathers towards children and the heart of children's towards fathers. Otherwise, the land cannot be saved, essentially is what he's saying. We, I cannot retake the land if this Elijah spirit is incapable of accomplishing this preparation task for the coming of the day of the Lord. So this is a heart task. And then when John the Baptist came to the world, you know, if you guys remember the story, Zechariah, his father, was in the temple, and Gabriel the angel said, hey, you're going to have a son. And he says this, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How does a people get prepared for the Lord? Uh, a spirit, the spirit of Elijah is released into the world to, again, turn the hearts of fathers to children and the heart of children to fathers to understand the nature of justice. Um, that is the preparation uh, for the day of the Lord. Now, um, this Elijah spirit, man, I, that's a really interesting. Like, I don't know if you guys know, uh, so every time Jews celebrate the Passover, they uh, set a, a special place setting at the Passover table for Elijah. They call it the Elijah chair. And as a part of the liturgy during the Passover, um, the Jewish people, a Jewish father of the house will tell um, one of the children to run to the door 
to see if Elijah's come. <laughs> it's such a beautiful picture. Like the Jewish people um, really understand the nature of the kingdom in some ways that we're missing. I described that earlier. But they also understand the importance of Elijah. This is so important because it's, it's, it's much more unpacked in the New Testament than the Old Testament. But they understand that if, there's going to, if the Messiah is going to come, the Elijah spirit has to, has to come first. Okay? Like, and we need to understand this. Because part of what is going to happen here, and this is what I'm praying for you guys, is I think that some of you are probably have an Elijah calling on your life. Like you're going to connect with this spirit. You're going to have a desire to see hearts of fathers t- turn towards children and children towards the fathers. This is so important uh, because this prepares people to receive the gospel. They begin to understand the power of the gospel through this Elijah spirit. Now, this was unpacked by Jesus in Matthew 17. So you guys remember in Matthew 17, Jesus was transfigured, and uh, next to him appeared Moses and Elijah. <clears throat> and Jesus' face and clothes like, looked like the sun. It was like so dazzling white. He had three of his, his disciples with him. Now, when they walked down from the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration, I don't know what you would have asked Jesus, but I'd be like, what the heck was that? Like you glowing and like, but you know what they wanted to know? You know what they were really curious about? Because they understand the story. They said, okay, Jesus, we got to talk about Elijah. Like, explain this to us. What is going on with Elijah? And um, Jesus says this, and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Oof. Okay. Jesus is saying something incredibly profound here. He's really saying Elijah comes in three ways. Elijah has come, right, in the Old Testament. Elijah does come, or did come, in John the Baptist. And Elijah will come to to restore all things. Um, So this is such an important spirit to understand, because this is how restoration occurs. The Elijah spirit comes. Again, he's a a father-inspiring spirit. uh, And the way that that he impacts is that he takes the people of God and causes this understanding of family, of fatherhood and the importance of children to come together to prepare people to understand the gospel. And so we know about this with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he made straight the paths for the Lord. What did, what did, that, what did that mean? He was preaching a, fa- a family-oriented story. He was explaining the importance of family. And as we talk about how can a culture receive and understand the heart of the Father if fatherhood doesn't exist? Have you ever talked to somebody about the gospel and said, you know what, God loves you like a father? And they say, whoa, I mean, I can tell you how my father loved me and it was not something I want to repeat. You know how hard it is to receive the gospel? How about when you tell someone that what God wants to adopt you as a son into the family? And they're like, whoa, what's a son? Like, like, how does that work? Like, I, I was treated like a son, and I don't, I, I've never even seen somebody treated like a son in a really, really uh, good, in, in, a, in a really, in a way that I would want to be treated. Oof. How does that culture receive the gospel? Like, you, each one of you in your families are preserving the memory in this culture of family, and to whatever extent you are building into that, your hearts are knitted together as families, this is, this is really creating the platform through which people will get to finally see the, the gospel, see the heart of the Father, see how he loves us, see how much he wants to adopt us as his children. As his children. So this is how the gospel, um, the gospel of the kingdom rides on the highway of restored families. The gospel of the kingdom rides on the highway of restored families. All right, I got to say one last thing before we're done, okay? 
This is a warning. I don't know if you guys know this. Elijah does not come alone. Do you remember who opposed Elijah? Who was it? Who was who the spirit that opposed Elijah? Do you guys remember who it was? Jezebel. Oof. Okay, now it's just Old Testament stuff, right? <laughs> Jezebel. Who is that? Okay, so every time we see the spirit of Elijah released, it's always opposed by Jezebel. And you might say, well, that's a, that's a weird sort of historical, it happened in the, yeah, it happened in the, in the historical stories in, in the Old Testament. A lot of this is not understanding that, that, that the book of Kings, where this is, is really in the, in the Jewish uh, Tanakh, they don't put it in the historical books. You know where they put First Kings? In the prophets. That they see kings as prophecy. Not, it, it was historical, but it's primarily speaking about something that's, that's, that did happen, is still going to happen, and will happen in the future. These are patterns. And just like Jesus said, Elijah came, did come in John the Baptist, and will come to restore all things, we need to understand that what is going on in that story between Elijah and Jezebel is prophetic. It's not just historical. Okay? And so it just, and G, John the Baptist experienced this himself, right? Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. John had been telling Herod, quote, it is against God's law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. So John was killed by the Jezebel of his day for standing up for family. He, he refused to back down. He stood up to the ruler and said, no, your family is very important. You're a king in Israel, and it is not appropriate for you to destroy your family, and that is going to have a ripple effect on the rest of the culture. Uh, and so you need to understand that God is calling you to repent of the sexual immorality that you are committing, and what you're doing inside of your own home is not appropriate. You know, you need to repent. And this, of course, as a king, he just got so upset, and his wife, um, this woman that he was his mistress, and so this is how John found himself beheaded. Because, man, if you want to stir up, you know, some serious uh, hurt in your own life, stand up to Jezebel. It's tough. That's tough stuff. Now, Jesus, in writing a letter to the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2, he points this out. Uh, he says this, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. That's kind of weird. Jesus is literally calling a spirit or some person in this church Jezebel. Well, I thought Jezebel died in the Old Testament. Okay, no. Jezebel exists as a spirit, as does Elijah. These spirits come in tandem. Now, I think we need to understand exactly what Jezebel's after. What, how does she work? How does the spirit work? And this, can, this, is, this again, is a pattern. It's a spirit. It, it, it's something we have to deal with culturally. Um, and the most, the lengthy story we have about Jezebel is a story about how she dealt with a father named Naboth. Naboth was a very noble man. He lived in the Jezreel Valley, and Ahab looked at his vineyard, and Ahab was Jezebel's uh, husband. He was king of Israel, and he looked at the vineyard and said, I'd really like a cucumber garden, <laughs> thank you, in your vineyard. Could you sell me? I'll pay you whatever. Like, and Naboth turns to Ahab and says, far be it from me to sell the inheritance of my fathers. He refused to give up that land. Why? Because in Israel, like, why wouldn't he just take another piece of land? Because he was building a multi-generational family. He was a patriarch. He desperately wanted to make sure that, that it, this land, this particular land, was preserved in his family because this is what created roots for his family line. 
And so he refused to give in to Ahab because he felt he saw himself as a steward of the family, as, as a father in his generation. And of course, then Jezebel, like Ahab's moping around the palace, but it says, but Jezebel, his wife came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife said to him, do you not now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Ugh. And I don't know if you guys know the rest of the story, but it gets, it's horrible. It's a really sad story. Essentially, um, what Jezebel does is he, she gets people to accuse this patriarch of, of, um, of some kind of sin, you know, to her gods, and, and she ends up stoning, having stoned Naboth and his entire family line. All of his sons are killed. They wipe out the family. Jezebel hates fathers, hates multi-generational families. So how does, how does, she basically has a, a three-step process. Um, you see this in every, every case. She starts by defi- redefining sexual morality. Jezebel, uh, she's a, essentially a spirit that creates lots of sexual morality. You see that in what Jesus said in Revelation 2. You see that in what Jezebel does in 1 Kings. You see that in what happened between Herod and Herodias in, in the Gospels. Um, and then she always attacks fatherhood. Um, and you see that with how Jezebel goes after um, Naboth. And then there's, a, there's usually a desire to seize political power to further idolatry. So you see this pattern in all three cases that we have in the scriptures of how the spirit works. So uh, just last things. So I'm trying to help you guys understand the fight we're in, the importance of family, the importance of fatherhood, the, the characters that are sort of on the board when the kingdom of God expands, and, and the kind of spirits that are both trying to build up the family and oppose the family. And so in this, in this day and age, we want to fight for fatherhood. Like, and you're, it's going to, you're going to take some hits if you do this. Um, you know, there's, there, if you asked, if you just gathered a bunch of, you know, professors from a university, secular university, and said, what's the most, what's the biggest problem, like, that has created the worst problems in our culture today? The one word you're most likely to hear is the word patriarchy, right? That's a really, that, that, down with the patriarchy, I cannot imagine Jezebel uh, unveiling her strategy better than using words like that, right? Patriarchy, which means father rule. We live in a sociologist, secular and Christian sociologist, all will tell you, we live in a day and age where fatherhood is in worse shape than ever in any culture in all of Western history. And the problem is too much fatherhood? The problem is too much fatherhood? That is, that is crazy, right? How could that possibly be the problem? That is the solution. But if you ever wanted to stop somebody from looking for the solution at fatherhood, just, just convince all of them that fatherhood is the problem. <laughs> like, that, that, is a, that is incredibly deceptive. Wow. The fact that, 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 that Jezebel was able to pull that off in our day is, is really, really scary. So we have to fight for fatherhood. Number two, we have to hold to the biblical sexual ethic. Jezebel will always try to redefine sexual morality. And this, this is a way, the reason for redefining sexual morality is to destroy the family, especially the multi-generational family. We have done terrible, I believe, in our culture at really clarifying this reality. The reason there is such a narrow sexual ethic in the scriptures is because the scriptures want to preserve the family for the sake of the gospel. That's why we are so careful about defining what is sexual sin and what is not sexual sin. But Jezebel she wants to destroy the family, 
And a really easy way to tug on that thread is let's just redefine sexual morality. That will do the work in a few generations. The third thing is we have to restore families. We have to create these outposts in exile. We have to accept our, our position as those who are looking to expand the kingdom through, through households and through outposts. So that, that, that kind of helps you guys, I think, hopefully understand the connections between the gospel and kingdom. Um, I don't know how much time we have left. Hopefully we have a little bit of time. Uh, Kevin, if we want to chat a little bit up here, and I know uh, Trev was going to come up, and we can uh, maybe debrief some of these, these topics. But. Was that a full meal deal or what? It's interesting because uh, the study I prepared for this morning hmm. has, has that Jabel, the Jezebel and all that stuff, oh, but really? not in that context. Hmm. That was incredible. So Trevor, this is my son Trevor. I don't know if you've ever met him, but he, uh, we were going to interview uh, Jeremy a little bit, um, and so I'm going to let Trevor do that uh, as far as any questions that come up, because I've got a, I got a million of them, but I'm going <laughs> to let you and my son yeah. interact a little bit. Yeah. Hey. Sure. That was awesome. So thanks for walking through that. Uh, can you, I think it'd be helpful to maybe go back even before creation and talk a little bit about kind of the Trinity and why mm. God chose to kind of review himself as, reveal himself as a father and Jesus as the son. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you kind of hit that over the weekend. And I think that's a helpful place to kind of start the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, one of the questions you can ask is, are we spiritual beings uh, having a physical experience or are we physical beings having a spiritual experience, right? Um, and I, I think that, that the Bible really describes that we, we are really spiritual beings, right? There's something, there, so we, we, the physical is very important, and uh, so I don't want to diminish that, but there's a spiritual reality to all of the, the things that we're experiencing physically. And so we, the, that's, that's most clear, you know, where, when Paul says that marriage is really a picture of Christ in the church. That's such a weird thing to say. Like, really, this whole thing you guys are doing, getting married and you know, you're obsessed about romance and, and then, you know, trying to stay married for, you know, many, many years and celebrating anniversaries. All of that is really a picture of the gospel to the world of how Jesus loves the church. Okay. Whoa. Okay. That's what we're stewarding when we're trying to fight for marriage. Well, the same is true for family, right? So uh, the Trinity wants, and he's decided, so you can ask what comes first. It seems like what scripture is really teaching is that God, first of all, is a father who has a son and is asking himself, how do, I, how do I explain this to these creatures? Like, how do I, oh, I know, I'll make some of them fathers and some of them sons. And so uh, I'll make some of them wives and some of them husbands. Like, these are, there's a spiritual reality to what we're experiencing. And so the, the revelation of God as father and the, that Jesus, his favorite word for himself throughout the whole gospels was, I'm a son, I'm a son, I'm a son. One of the things that's interesting, though, is if you were to ask most Western people, what is a son? Like, what comes to your mind when you think of somebody say, hey, I'm a son? Like, most of us picture like a five-year-old kid, you know, <laughs> because we don't understand sonship. Uh, probably the story for me that really unveils this is Jesus told a parable about um, a father who had a vineyard, and then he leaves the vineyard and wants to get the produce from the tenants. And so he sends a servant, he sends a servant, he sends another servant. They keep beating them up, they keep kicking them out, they keep saying, we don't want to give this father what he, uh, what he er has earned through our work. And so the father then says this really interesting thing. I know, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. That is a son. The son is a represent representation of the father. 
And so even that idea, like when I'm with my son or looking at you two guys, <laughs> like there's, this is a picture. It's so important to understand this picture when you see fathers and sons because we're trying to understand the nature of, of, of what God is like and what, who Jesus is. And so I think even that idea, in living in the Middle East, I began to see this picture, like, you know, in, in actual families, fathers and sons, fathers passing things on to sons, you know, this relationship. And, you know, in the gospel, like it was described, one of the things that's interesting about um, women in the New Testament is that it's, it, Paul says in Galatians, that because we, the, the inheritance that we're actually receiving is in Christ. He keeps using that word, but we, we kind of think of that as almost like a, you know, oh, it's a nice little preposition, in. It's a technical word. We are in Christ. And so when I am covered in Christ, even uses that word, the clothing of Christ, I'm in Christ, I am in the firstborn son. And so I receive the inheritance in Christ. That's why we're the body of Christ. We're in Christ. And so every woman who is in Christ is also in the firstborn son. And so when we talk about the importance of understanding sonship, we're not saying, hey, there's this, you know, you've inherited a daughter's portion according to, you know, sort of these traditional families. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we've been adopted into the son and that as men and women together, we are in the firstborn son and therefore we're receiving that inheritance. So all of those little pictures that you need to like understand how family works, those are all gospel pictures that, that really rely on preserving you know, these, these concepts, they're spiritual concepts, and we have to, we have to be really careful with them. Uh, you want me to keep going? Yeah. Okay. The, the next thing is, I left this weekend, I'm not sure who else was there, really, really encouraged and, like, hopeful about what we can do to impact our city, and I think um, I haven't, I don't leave a lot of spaces that way. It's like you're like on social media and it's super discouraging to see kind of a lot of stuff that's happening. And so can you walk through kind of as we're restoring this picture of family and what we're aiming for, what that can do to impact our city and what we're aiming for and what like bolster us to get excited about that? Because that was one thing that I left this weekend just like really excited for mm. and being able to jump in and being able to uh, aim for that. So Yeah, I, I would say that maybe the, the overarching picture is that what happens in your home um, wh- how you are building your houses, how you steward your tables, how you treat one another as, as husbands and wives, as sons and daughters, that, number one, you want that, first of all, to be fruitful, right? So that the pattern of the gospel is fruitful, multiply, subdue, rule. And you really can't, you have to do it in that order. So you first have to ask, is, is my household, is what's happening under the roof of my household fruitful so that it, it's, a, it's a proper representation of the gospel. And that doesn't mean you're perfect. You know, the gospel is all about how imperfect people receive forgiveness. And so is your, so is your household a place where forgiveness is, is re- really works? Like people actually have reconciled relationships. Well, that's what we're looking for. We're definitely not looking for any kind of religious perfection. But you want to have fruitfulness, like experiencing that gospel. Then multiply, like, like that includes both spiritual and physical descendants. Like it's really important to, if family is really this picture, then children uh, are really important. And so we want to be really, really thoughtful about how we're raising children. And that's, of course, a part of the fruitfulness. And that's how we begin to subdue. That's how the kingdom spread. That's how we make disciples is, is in and through the home. And so that is what I'd encourage you guys to think about is if you, if you have a fruitful household, open the doors so that others can come in. Like we talk about foster care. What an amazing opportunity to open your, the doors of your house so that someone who has experienced family brokenness can experience family wholeness, right? Like that, that, is the, that is the ministry of the kingdom of God. 
But how do we do this for, you know, your kids' friends, people on the street, in, in your neighborhood? You've you got this little outpost of the kingdom, which is crazy if you think about. Like, I, I'm sitting here in my house, and I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I've got, I'm a dome over which the, the king is reigning in this house. I'm doing my best to be fruitful here. But I get to be right next to neighbors, you know, like right there. Like, the kingdom is here. And it's not here. Yes, that's my mission field right here. Like, I don't have to go anywhere. Like, I can cross the street and just reach my neighbors, say, come over to our house, like, enjoy a meal with us. And so rhythms of mission, I believe, really just looks like being a family and then opening the doors of your family life to be seen and experienced by others and then draw the connection back to the gospel. That's all you have to do. And that, so that, that's what we try to practice rhythmically as a family. Um, that's what people need to, to see, hear, experience. And it's not just non-believers, right? We all need that. Like, that's what heals me. You know, when I get to experience, sit at a table with my family and experience, you know, what sonship and daughterhood and motherhood and fatherhood feel like and look like, it does something not just for them, but it, it, like the gospel starts to heal my heart. So this, this is for all of us. Talk about the end of the story. So we're headed towards yes. something and we're talking about the table. Talk yes. about the end of the story. Yeah, so that can Genesis, the worship team come up while we're closing up here? That, uh, that Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation, one of the things I love about the stories, there's sort of two, and, and you know, people who study literature say, if you want to understand the meaning of a story, you really want to understand how it ends. And so the story ends uh, both in Jesus' life, around a table with his disciples right before he's crucified, and he says, oh, I so wanted to eat this meal with you. And then in the end of Revelation, it ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? There's this beautiful wedding that happens at the end of Revelation. And then what happens? We all get around a table with our Father. This is, this is the story. This is the good life. This is what we're looking for. And every single time you set the table and you begin to experience that family experience, you are rehearsing the, the coming of the kingdom of God, the, the experience of tasting and seeing the goodness of God through being at that table. So preserving and experiencing that, that table, that's, that's the story we're in. We're in a story about a wedding that's going to culminate in a wedding feast. And this is why when Jesus' first miracle, he was so interested in what was going on in that wedding feast because he wanted to preserve, again, for us, the experience, the understanding of this is the story we're in. You are in a story about a wedding and a family that, that's going to feast because of the reconciled, beautiful relationships between fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters. It's awesome. Last thing. Yeah. Just commission us. Like, obviously, you grew up in this area. You want to see oh, yeah. the kingdom to ring to bear. What would you have to just kind of encourage these families? I'm going to have you that. Yeah. Because let's, let's, would you stand with us and let's do a worship song and then really choose sure. it. Because I, I wanted to read this. Yeah. You wrote in your book, and I thought it was so uh, helpful mm. in this way. I realized that my faith in the gospel is too weak. And I set aside a whole year and almost exclusively studied the gospel until my heart broke over and over with what Christ did for me. Yeah. Then out of my brokenness, I tried to find ways to express my heart to my family. Yeah. It's so powerful. So if you can think through and just commission us, pray over us, yeah. let's do this song together. We can just stay up here and, okay. and ask the Lord. Mm. Yes. Father, thank you for... Uh, how much you love us like a father and we thank you lord jesus for the gospel we thank you that you looked at us and said you know my brothers and sisters need to hear and understand the heart of the of our father and that you came and revealed the heart of our father and so i ask that you would break our hearts for the gospel that we would 
understand um, what it's like to be that prodigal that gets to return to the Father's house with our pathetic little repentance story and just hear, quick, get the robe, get the ring, kill the fattened calf. We have to celebrate this son of mine was lost and is found. So we just want to receive that love. We want to be at that feast at your table, Father. We want to experience and taste the goodness of your kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done in this place as it is in heaven. So I bless your families with abundant love for one another. May the love that emanates in your hearts and overflows through the Holy Spirit to your children, to your spouses, may that infect your house in such a dramatic way that your hearts are changed, that the hearts of fathers are turned to the children and the children are turned to the fathers and that the world would look at this and say, wow, there's got to be something true about this kingdom, this gospel. I want more of this gospel. I want to be a part of this kingdom. Father, may we express that in a, in a, in a way that others can see it, can taste and see your goodness. And may you heal this land, that last statement of Malachi that if this doesn't happen, the land cannot be redeemed. God, we want this land to be redeemed. I want to see Kent and Auburn and Federal Way and Des Moines and Burien and Renton and all of these cities here um, in this valley and around this place. Um, there, there would be little outposts of your kingdom all over the place. So there is no spiritual orphans in this, in this area. That they always know that, the, that they can go and be a part of a kingdom family and experience your kingdom in a home at a table, in a living room, on a back deck, that these places we steward, these outposts, would uh, just be filled with, uh, with fruit, fruitfulness of your kingdom. People would, would see and experience that. Pray for that in Jesus' name.